Take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning, if you would please, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. I want to look at a text this morning, an exciting day at church. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Beginning in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you kill the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now look down at chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they'd set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by 
by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Look down at verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Father, your word tells us that without holy hands and holy hearts, we cannot enter into worship with you. And so, God, we confess our need of your cleansing. We pray that through the blood of Christ that all of our sins would be washed away. God, that we would be sanctified and holy in your sight. Lord, speak to us through your word. Lord, speak to hearts as I can only speak to ears. I ask you to move hearts. And Lord, may we take great confidence and assurance by the By the confidence and boldness of the early disciples. How they met needs around them in the name of Christ. And they preached Jesus and they stood boldly for the name of Christ. And they would not be deterred or intimidated in the mission that you had set before them. Lord, may we live like this in this current day. May we live as salt and light. Lord, may we live out the Great Commission regardless of what anybody else does or says. I pray that we would be found faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks to you, some uh, years ago, Connie and the kids and I had the opportunity of traveling some of the West Coast and seeing some of the sites out west. And uh, one of the places that we went to and toured different sites was the city of San Francisco. Uh, One thing that struck us about the city of San Francisco was how many street people and beggars are out on the sidewalks. There are street artists and beggars everywhere and some of them are quite creative in their art. They'll paint their their body and their clothes all silver. Silver hats, shoes, socks, skin, everything. And they'll stand straight and and stiff as a robot for for hours it would seem as the crowds would come up and look at them. And and of course there would be a little container down there where you could throw money uh, into a hat or a container. Uh, Others would sit there on the sidewalk and say... Science experiment, please donate to my alcohol project. And there'd be a hat there. 
Uh, there was one guy, there was a large metal trash can on the sidewalk between uh, the passers-by and, and a large post there. And he hid between the, the post and the, and the trash can. And, and he would jump out at people as they came by. And if, if he jumped out at you and he scared you, he'd say, Aha, I scared you. you got to pay me something. And, and he would keep on and on and on until people coughed up a little bit of change to give to him. These folks were all over. Many of them poor beggars. Now as we look at Acts chapter 3 this morning, we see that Peter and John confronted one of these poor beggars. Now the Bible tells us that, that in addition to being a beggar, this man had actually been crippled from birth. Never had he walked. Never had he played with the other children. He didn't know any of those pleasures growing up. And I imagine growing up he had lived somewhat of a, of a very lonely existence in many respects. Now folks, what do we normally do when we see somebody like this? If we're walking down the road or we're walking into a building and we see somebody like this, what do we normally do? We normally look the other way. We don't make eye contact. Maybe we pick up our pace a little bit to get by them. Well, Peter and, and John made eye contact, and I want you to notice where they were going. They were going to the temple. At this point, the early Christians would still go to the Jewish temple to worship. Now that ended, of course, permanently in 70 AD when the Romans came in and, and destroyed the temple and, and much of Jerusalem. Even by Acts 7 and 8, when we see the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that broke out against Christians, they began even then pulling away from the temple uh, little by little. But at this point, they were still going to the temple each day to worship and to pray and to praise God. We see here that the apostles engaged the people around them even as Jesus had reached out to the lost and the hurting. Those who claimed to be his followers did the same. In other words, they took the Great Commission very seriously. And as they reached out to men and women, they preached Christ. They didn't simply do good deeds divorced from any kind of message. They were quick to proclaim the one who had set them free from sin and death. And they offered this same Jesus to others. And oftentimes their preaching got them in trouble with the authorities. But they persisted nonetheless. We see that God blessed their obedience and their determination to, to preach the good news. We could safely say from looking at this text, we could say that when God's people get wrapped up in God's business, God gets wrapped up in them. First thing I want you to notice with me from verses 2 and 3 this morning is the plight of the beggar. The plight of the beggar begging and giving alms was, were those, those things were such a big deal in Jewish life, in Jewish faith. The Old Testament spoke of looking after the poor. 
What this beggar's friends did was no doubt very wise. It was a smart move because where did they put him? Did they simply put him on a street corner somewhere? No, they they placed him at a strategic point there at the temple, at one of the gates leading into the temple so that as people were going in the temple to worship God, they would have to go through or walk past this poor beggar to get into the house of God. Obviously, that would play upon their sympathies. Now, later on in this passage, we're told that he was more than 40 years of age. That he had been lame from birth. So his condition is one of utter helplessness and and hopelessness. Now, folks, this is something that the Bible is very honest about. Sometimes people will ask, how can there be a God if there is so much evil and so much suffering and heartache in the world? Maybe you've been asked that question before. How can there be a God? But the Bible paints this as all being a part of the fall. Now I want to digress a bit to talk about the beggar's plight and and how we see this being such a reality in in the world. And, And so I want to talk a moment about sin and depravity and suffering and what God is up to through these things and regardless of these things. I'm not meaning to disconnect it from what we read here, but just to show you what God is up to in the world to address things like we see here in this narrative. And what I ultimately want you to see is things like this, heartache and sin and suffering don't have the last say on mankind. Aren't you grateful for that? Scripture is very clear on the fact that at creation, God created a world that was good. After each day of creation, he said, this is good, this is good. Finally, this is very good. Human existence was good. Everything was good. God only placed one restriction on Adam and Eve, and they chose to break that one boundary, that one commandment that God told them to to avoid. The scripture wants us to understand that when sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve did that, when they disobeyed God and sin entered into the created order, uh, it, it not only affected man, but it affected everything. And once sin entered into the picture, you see Adam and Eve hiding from God. They're isolated from God. They're estranged from God. They're alienated from God. And they're going their own way. They're hiding. They're trying to get away from God. And then the very next chapter, you read that one of their sons killed their other son. Paul in Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation is groaning in despair even to this day and longing for the redemption of the children of God. And so in a way that perhaps you and I don't fully understand, everything about creation was negatively impacted. 
So that after the fall, you have natural disasters, you have destruction, you have bloodshed, you have people who are blind and deaf and crippled, you have disease, you have family divisions, you have one nation going to war against another nation, and sometimes even good people or people that we would call good by our standards get caught up in all of this. In fact... Both good things and bad things happen across the board to everybody. Some very evil people experience good things in life. And some very good people, again by our standards, seem to experience a lot of bad in their lives. It's it's now a world where everything doesn't always seem fair. It's part of the fall. And along with that is human depravity. Now what is human depravity? It it simply refers to the fact that we can't get ourselves out of this mess. At least spiritually speaking. There is nothing that you and I can do to put ourselves right with God. We can live by that philosophy that I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. But folks, regardless, we cannot bridge this gap between man and God. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man is sinful. Total depravity doesn't mean that we all sin to the same degree or frequency and it doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could be. But nonetheless, spiritually we are in this same shape spiritually that this beggar was in physically. There was nothing this beggar could do to help himself or get himself out of this predicament. But again... The Bible points out that evil and suffering doesn't have the last say. God is in the business of redemption. And so far from being uh, removed and and aloof from the world and, and far from being removed and aloof from mankind, God is right in the, the middle of our mess. They were to name Jesus, what, Emmanuel, God with us. Even in the garden, God provided for Adam and Eve's nakedness. And then in Genesis 12, he called Abram to go and begin a new nation, a nation that would be God's chosen people. And they were to be a light to the nation so that others might come to know God. And through them, God would raise up the Messiah who would be the promised Messiah, not just for the Jews, the chosen nation, but indeed for the world. And so again, far from being removed from our suffering God is in the business of redemption he's right in the middle of it and the Bible points out that one day he is going to renew not only his children but the whole created order John says he saw a new heavens and a new earth coming down from heaven we talk a lot about getting out of here one day and being taken from, uh, to heaven. But the Bible talks about, in some sense, heaven coming down to us. And again, in a way that we may not completely understand, there's going to be some type of meshing together 
between the heavenly and the earthly. The earth is going to be made over again. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that this earth, this globe is going to be destroyed and remade. God is making a, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he says that's the heavens and the earth that we're to be longing for. There's going to be continuity and discontinuity. You say, what in the world do you mean by that? Let me give you an analogy. Think of Jesus' resurrection body. There was continuity and and discontinuity. Continuity in the fact that after Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples, he still looked like he did before. It was the same Jesus. He appeared to them in the upper room and, and he could eat bread among them. They could touch him. He said, Thomas, come here and feel these nail prints and look at this place in my side. It is I. There was continuity. It was the same Jesus. And he was bodily because, he, again, he could eat and he could be touched. And yet at the same time, there was some discontinuity because while he was solid mass, he could pass through the wall and be there in their midst in a way we don't understand. Same way with the created order. Continuity and discontinuity. God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And it's going to be like this heavens and this earth. But yet it's going to be renewed. It's going to be without the effects of the fall. It's going to be without sin. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. And you and I are going to have new bodies. And our new body is going to be like our body now. You're still going to be you and I'm still going to be me. And yet there's something different about the glorified body. I want you to see that the Bible recognizes problems like this beggar was going through. And it addresses what God is doing about it. And contrary to what you hear Christians speak of today, it's not that we just chunk this body aside and this earth aside and as a bunch of disembodied spirits, we fly off to a a new world that's only spiritual where all we do for all of eternity is just a bunch of spirits floating around on a cloud. The Bible doesn't talk about that. Again, the Bible talks about physical bodies. A new heavens and a new earth. A physical place. But until God brings this story of redemption to its consummation, to its glorification, what do we see? We see things just like this poor beggar going on all around us. Humanity in a desperate plight. But I want you to see, secondly, the pronouncement of the apostles beginning there in verse 4. No doubt when Peter looked at the man and not away from the man, the man's heart probably began to skip a beat because here was a man who was not going to look the other way. Peter wasn't going to hurriedly walk past him. Here was a man, he must have thought he's going to drop some coins in my container and tonight I'm going to have a little something extra to eat. Tonight I might have bread. Hey, he might even drop enough in my container. I might even be able to buy a little bit of uh, fish and fruit and vegetables to go with my bread. 
All of that must have been going on in his mind as he saw Peter and John approaching and they locked eyes. And then Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. The man's hopes must have been dashed on the rocks. He probably sat there and thought, then why did you get my attention? Why did you look at me like you were going to do something to help if you're not? And then Peter said, what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And amazingly, we're not told exactly how it happened. But God healed the man. The man stood, he walked, he leaped, he jumped. He he went into the temple jumping and, and praising God. Now folks, as a normal part of the apostolic age, just as Jesus' earthly ministry was was confirmed with the presence of miracles, so too the apostles' ministries were confirmed by miracles and signs. Do things like this happen today? Well, occasionally we hear testimonies coming off of remote mission fields where people don't have anything and there's, there's no medical attention occasionally we hear reports of missionaries writing back and and telling stories that that to our ears just seem almost unbelievable. These things are rare in, 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 in our setting. Standard fare for the apostles. The writer of Hebrews, though, even seems to suggest that by his day, that period was already ending. He speaks in Hebrews 2 about the apostles having their message confirmed by by miracles and signs and wonders. And and he speaks of it as though it is already beginning to be in the past tense. Does that mean God can't do something like this today? Absolutely not. God is God. God is sovereign. God can do whatever He wants to do, whenever He wants to do it, however He wants to do it. It's only to say that that what we see in the book of Acts related, related to this seems to be a special way that God worked through the apostles. He continued to do through the apostles what Jesus had done in the Gospels. And it was a sign to everybody about the reality and truth of the apostles' message and that the kingdom of God, while future, had also come into the present time. And that's why Jesus was able to say in Mark 1, Repent, for the kingdom of God has arrived. With the incarnation of Christ, the kingdom of God had broken into time and ushered in the last days. And just like in God's presence there will be no ill effects of sin, no disease, no blindness, no cripples, God was putting healing together with the message preached by the apostles to give us a little foreshadowing of what heaven is going to be like one day. No suffering, no pain, no sickness, and no death. And God's given us a little glimpse of that here. Now folks, this brings us where I really want to start zeroing in this morning. All of that just kind of sets the table. Notice that the people were completely perplexed. They didn't know what to make of it all. And that sets up the next scene. What do we see in the next scene? We see the preaching of Peter. And as a summary of that, uh, look at what he says there uh, in verse In in verse 12, it says, Peter, Saul, 
he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? What did Peter begin to do here? Peter began to preach the gospel. Just like it was the proclamation of Peter that set the crippled man free, now he pointed the people uh, in the crowd to Jesus. He gave an invitation that God had used their times of ignorance uh, in the Old Testament for his purposes so that the Messiah would come and suffer and die and be raised again. And since God had used their ignorance, he was now willing to overlook their ignorance if they would only repent and believe. In other words, the miracle itself was not the focus. What had happened with this Lame man was just the appetizer for the main event. What was the main event? Peter preached the word of God. He preached Jesus. And he directly tied Jesus in with with the Old Testament. He was the long-awaited Messiah. Sometimes people say today, do we need to study the Old Testament? What a foolish question that is. The New Testament grows out of the old. To preach the new without a knowledge of the old would be to set people up for historical confusion. Jesus didn't just show up one day in a vacuum. God talked about him in the Old Testament. God gave signs and symbols of him in the Old Testament. And the apostles, what they did, they tied all this together in a historical way showing that history has meaning and purpose. It's not like the pagans of of Peter's day who believe that, that history was just cyclical and, hey, you might die and come back as something different. No, history has meaning, it has purpose. It's going somewhere. And and in this story of redemption, God has has brought this story to a climax in Jesus. Now folks, I want you to understand what he's doing here because it, it has huge application to us. Christ is why we get up and come here. Christ is why we go to the hospital and pray at somebody's bedside. Christ is why we put together mission teams and we send them out. Christ is why we have things like vacation Bible school. Christ is why we might go out into the community and build handicap ramps uh, to help somebody. Christ is why we do it all. And as we go and do it all, we're to preach the message of Jesus. We're not just to do the benevolent deed and then leave them. If we do a benevolent need and alleviate somebody's pain and suffering in this world, but do not tell them how to be saved and ready to meet God, all we have done is alleviated them a little temporarily now and we've just got them better ready to die and go to hell. We need to connect the message of the Bible together with everything that we do. When we do what we do, we need to let people know this is why we do what we do. Because God has sent a Savior and His name is Jesus. And God is commanding men everywhere to repent and believe. And if you repent and believe, then you can have eternal life through His name. 
Folks, that's what ministry is to be about. It's like Paul said in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed and who has heard, uh, who, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. A church that does ministry and yet fails to preach Jesus is guilty of the worst sort of malpractice. Now notice that in chapter 4 Peter and John had the opportunity to preach to the leaders. They didn't like what happened. Told him to quit preaching. Verse 12, Peter says, No, there is salvation and no one, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Salvation comes through Christ and by Christ. It's both. It's salvation is through Christ, through faith in Him, and it is by Him. Salvation is by Him and through Him. You see, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that when Christ died on that cross, God split that veil from the top to the bottom. And that opened that way into the Holy of Holies. Previously, only the high priest could go in to the Holy of Holies and only one time a year. But with Jesus as our high priest, when he died, when he made uh, atonement for our sin, when he took away our sin there on the cross, he opened that veil, he opened the way into the Holy of Holies that anybody who comes to God through him can go into the very presence of God. The writer of Hebrews says, Bold! We can go boldly before the throne of grace Knowing that as we get there Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father And he's our advocate And he's making intercession for us There's no other way Through that veil And into the Holy of Holies No other way No other name Other than the person of Jesus Christ now, folks, if he is the only way, doesn't it make sense that a church, that Christians would preach Jesus? If we fail to preach Jesus, we ultimately render the ministry meaningless 
and we waste our time. We preach Jesus. Notice finally here the prohibition by the leaders. It was issued but rejected. Chapter 4, 13 and following. Boy, they have a little conference, don't they? What are we going to do now? No, we're, we're afraid of the multitudes and nobody can deny what has happened here. We see this man standing here. And verse 22 says, everybody knows he's been a cripple from birth and now he's more than 40 years of old of, of age. We can't deny this. No denying this miracle. Put him in crisis mode. All they knew to do was to forbid the apostles from preaching anymore. Essentially, they were saying, we're going to let this incident here go, but it better not happen again. Now, notice what the apostles did. It was a case of legitimate civil disobedience. What's civil disobedience? Well, let me explain it this way. The Bible says in the New Testament that you and I are to be model citizens. The early Christians were accused of all sorts of things. They were accused of traitors and all that, betraying the Roman Empire because they wouldn't burn incense to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. And, and, and so they, they were even accused of being atheists because... They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. Imagine that. Christians being accused of being an atheist. They were accused of all sorts of things. They were accused of incest because they called one another brother and sister. They were accused of cannibalism because of partaking of the Lord's Supper. All kinds of false accusations. And, and Paul in Romans 13 and also Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says to you and I, you and I are to silence the foolish accusations of unbelievers by being model citizens. We are to obey the laws of the land. We are to be model citizens so that the governing powers say, boy, I like those Christians. They're, they're good to govern. They even pray for us. Like a, a, like a boss at church, a boss, I mean a boss at work. He ought to say, call an employment agency and say, Hey man, send me more of those Christians. They're honest, boy. They're, they do well. That's the type of people that you and I are to be. However, the New Testament also makes it clear that when the government oversteps its God-ordained boundaries. And the government calls on us to set aside the Word of God or our religious freedoms or our, our mandate to preach the gospel, then you and I need to engage in civil disobedience. Peter says here, "Who you tell us to shut up. Are we going to obey you or are we going to obey God? Are we going to bow the knee to Caesar or are we going to bow the knee to Jesus? And the apostle said, count us in. We're going to bow the knee to Jesus. Now, 
they were also prepared to suffer. Civil disobedience, they, they knew there'd be consequences and they were willing to suffer. And that may happen today. A lot of people think the book of Acts, what's going on here is where we're heading in the world today and where we're heading in this nation. When the go- what, what are we going to do when the government says to the church in America today, you cannot carry the name of Jesus out onto the streets. Keep your mouth shut and just keep what you do inside your four walls of your church. We forbid you to do anything else. What are we going to do? Are we going to bow the knee to Caesar or are we going to bow the knee to Jesus? The apostle said, we're going to bow the knee to Jesus. And I hope and pray that this generation of Christians is ready and willing to do the same regardless of the consequences. Some lessons here in our text. Lesson number one, as Christians our eyes and our ears need to be open to those around us crying out for help. Folks, you'll notice here that the apostles did not live in some kind of little church bubble. Because of the fall of man, you and I need to see that there are real and desperate needs around us every single day. And we need to live as salt and light and we need to reach out to people in Jesus' name. We can't fix them, but we know the one who can. What we must do though is we must care. How much do you and I care about the lostness and desperation of people around us? You say that's somebody else's job. Bible says in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, if we can look at human needs and desperation and just turn a blind eye to it, you know what John says? John essentially says, I don't care how many times you profess Christ as Lord. You don't know God. You're not saved. Now you'll have to take that argument up with John one day, but that's what John basically says. If we can look at a lost and dying world and say, no, I'm going to stay in my little church bubble and I'm going to stay all nice and comfortable, not get out of my comfort zone. I'll let somebody else do that and I'm not going to reach out to anybody in Jesus' name. I'm not going to tell anybody about Jesus. I'm not going to help anybody. I'm not going to be involved in ministry. I'm not going to help people. John says you do that because you don't know God because What you do is the fruit of the fact that you don't have God's nature in you. Because God's nature is to love a lost world. God's nature is to love the dying. And he reached out in the incarnation of his son Jesus Christ. And so somebody who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is going to have the eyes and the heart and the mind and the ears of Jesus. We can't help it because we have his spirit in us. So if we don't care, It's because we don't know Him. Don't care how many hundreds or thousands of church services you sit through. You don't know Him. If you're not willing to get your hands dirty in a lost and a dying world. We've got to care. Second, we must move beyond benevolent deeds to preaching a message about Jesus. It does little good to help people in this life only. 
We need to use physical needs as a bridge for preaching the gospel. And then thirdly and lastly, we need to be prepared for opposition. I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer with me a moment. And as you do, this this morning do you need to, to purpose in your heart to engage more with a lost world and with hurting people? Don't be an island to yourself. Pray that God would give you His eyes, His ears, His heart of compassion. Maybe this morning you need to pray that God would give you a greater boldness along with that greater sensitivity. Remember, as long as God has us here, we are to push back against the darkness by shining the light of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. And when we carry the gospel to those in need, Lord, what we see you do is amazing. Lord, open our lips. Open our lips. Lord, drive our hands and feet. Drive our hearts. That we'll get right in the middle of a lost world. And tell people about the Jesus who saved us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.